cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbit! And cut. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut, let's try it again. Cut! And cut! 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 Check the gate. Cut it! Cut! Oh! In the next scene, Lelena's kind of prepping for the big premiere of her documentary at uh, In Your Face at, at the studios that they have. And Michael shows up to Lelena's apartment. Troy's there kind of chilling in the dark by himself. Is he reading again? I think he is, but okay. you don't, you can't tell what the book is. He's just kind of sitting. Yeah. And so Michael shows up and he's like, hey, uh, the door was open. Like very Ben Stillery, awkward. They kind of just have this weird back and forth. Which apparently when Ben went to meet Ethan Hawke for the part, their energy was kind of similar. Not to where they like hated each other, but Ethan Hawke was Troy at the time, like without being a douche like that. Like he like he looked that way. He injected a lot of his like, you know, intelligence into Troy was similar to how Ethan Hawke was. You know, he played guitar, he sang, stuff like that. And Ben Stiller was Ben Stiller. So it was kind of like they had that same kind of tension and they were so different that it was just awkward when they met the first time. So like the awkwardness and tension that you see between Michael and Troy is pretty real because that's how it was with Ethan and Ben. So they kind of come in and, you know, Troy's being a dick as usual to Michael. And then Michael says, what is your glitch? Which is a really good line for me. (laughs) But it starts with that. Lelena is getting dressed. Yeah. So she comes in and then she comes out with the dress and Michael thinks it looks fantastic. And Troy says, you look like a doily. Which she does. Yeah. But and I had a top like that in the nineties with like the knitted over like the white, like her dresses. I totally had a top like that, but yeah, she looks like a doily. And that's <laughs> when Stiller gets offended and says, like, what is your glitch, man? He's like, is there some secret tan shake that uh, I don't know about? Let me and- get another good Troy line. There's no secret handshake. There's an IQ prerequisite, but there's no secret handshake. And then we get that really tense moment at the end where Michael's like, you don't need this. And Troy's like, you don't know what she needs. And the camera just that goes, push whoosh. In yeah. On, then Stiller is like fucking nails it. Like <laughs> yeah, he, he goes does. from like kind of goofy, awkward dude. Yeah. To like, damn, like and yeah. you could even see in, in Troy's face. Right. He's just where like, he's like, oh, maybe he's right. You know? So we get to the debut of Lelena's documentary and we're at like some HQ of In Your Face TV. Everyone's really optimistic. It's going to be awesome. And then there's that one micro moment where Lelena asks Michael what he thinks of it. He's like, I don't know. I haven't really seen it. And so they're both seeing it for the very first time. And then you start seeing it. To me, it's really not an episode, but it's more of like a sizzle reel or like a preview of what you're about to see. But it's really 90s fight and like cut up and like product placement and like everything that um, she's not about. Yeah, like the music alone. Yeah, I have Story of My Life by Social D, School's Out by Alice Cooper, Road to Never by Talking Heads, Let's Talk About Sex by Salt and Peppa. It's just like a cacophony of like 90s, like in your face yeah. branding. What it really reminded me, reminded me of is the real world. Which, by the way, did you know that it actually started off as a documentary? It wasn't going to no. be a television series. It was going to be like a one-off. I had no idea. Type of deal. And then look at what it became. And it sort of became what her documentary would be. So after Elena sees that they pretty much cut up 
everything she had done. She storms out of the building and Michael follows her. Like you were saying, he hasn't seen this either. Part of me is like, Lelena was in TV, so she kind of knows how this works. So I feel like before she went and sold her stuff, she could have been like, well, let me be involved in the the process, the process somehow so that this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> like, on obviously, this is a plot point. But, you know, part of me is like, well, she should have been like more gung-ho to be like, you know, I want to be involved in every aspect of how it's going to be cut, how it's going to be promoted. You know, if, if I'm selling you this stuff, I need to be involved somehow. That walk and talk is also a wonder. It's not as long as the previous one. It's about a minute, but it's still one of those hard things to achieve logistically, having two people talk at the same time and moving the plot forward. And also as they're going out the revolving door, that revolving door only has three panels so that they can fit the camera through there. Oh, I never noticed yeah. that. So yeah, it's just, just to make like, it a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. At the end of that argument, you kind of realize that Michael really has no idea why Lelaine is mad because he's like, I'll just make, I'll, I'll have them take out the pizza thing. Like that's, that's all he says. Going back to the he's full of shit. Like I feel like he's like, doesn't know what he believes in or maybe he's trying to hide what he really believes in. I don't know if he's so much full of shit as I think maybe he's a little dumb. <laughs> like <laughs> well, he's not yeah, very socially aware. And also like maybe like he seems like the type to be brought up with like a chivalrous attitude towards women is kind of what he seems like to me. I could totally be stretching, but, and that's kind of why he's kind of a doormat yeah, for Lelena, basically. Like he's just like a yes man, like you were saying earlier. So maybe that's why, but yeah, I feel like part of it is that he's a little dumb. <laughs> mm-hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> Lena and Troy, we get back to their apartment and Lena has just gone back from the disastrous world premiere of her documentary. Troy comes in and he asks Lelena how the big premiere went. Something in the way he asks leads me to believe that this is douchey Troy because he's never really cared about a documentary. He's like hated it this whole time. And the fact that Michael was helping her get it off the ground, I feel like the only reason he's asking is so that she'll be like, it fucking sucked. And it'd be like, I fucking told you. He wanted it to go bad. Exactly. They have this small back and forth. And one of the lines that stood out to me was when she says, I just don't understand why things just can't go back to normal at the end of the half hour, like on the Brady Bunch or something. And then Troy being Troy answers, well, cause Mr. Brady died of AIDS, which is fucked up. That's where his like, you go from asshole Troy to comforting Troy and like true emotions maybe. And then we have Lelena who says, I really thought I was going to be someone by the time I was 23. And then he says, you should just be yourself. I'm like 23. But I I feel as a kid, 23 was old to me. And I thought by 23. By 23, I wanted, I was going to be married. By 25, I was going to have kids. And then I got to 23 and I was like, no. And I think that's an important thing too, to realize is that, especially as you get older, the whole idea is that you need to have it figured out especially because once you get to those ages, you realize that people that you thought had it figured out in their 30s had no idea what they were doing. And so that's sort of the reality of like the expectation that sort of society brings upon you and even just going through school is that, yeah, you finish college and then you get your job and then you get a house and have, you know, two kids. And You're just supposed to miraculously know everything about yeah, everything. And that everything's just going to work out that way doesn't. And so if you're listening and you're young, 
Uh, don't put so don't much even worry on about yourself. it. <laughs> Just relax, have a good time, enjoy the age that you're at, um, because it's gonna be gone in the blink of an eye. So Troy puts on the charm. They end up hooking up again. For real this time. For reals, because he references later in the movies, like, we made love. Oh, it's yeah, not just he like does say we that. Had, we didn't sleep together. We yeah, didn't yeah, have yeah. sex, but we made love. So they have sex, and then it's the next morning or afternoon, and um, Elena's, like, asleep. She gets up, and then Troy's, like, already out the door. And she's like, where are you going? He's like, oh, I got band practice. It was like at what, like, oh, I guess it was a morning because it's like nine in the morning or something like that. 8.42 in the morning. Yeah. Or 8.26. And he has just this look of like, I'm leaving yeah. regardless of <laughs> and what And he say. even turns around and he's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then he leaves. Lena is like pissed and questioning everything. And, and that's probably the most infuriating thing with Troy is that he just makes you question everything about yourself and the world. That man always does. That type of man always does. Lelena follows Troy to the club eventually because he has a gig later in the day. I love Ethan Hawke, but that band is not good. That song, not good. I'm nothing. I have the and whole... Ethan Hawke is actually singing it. I know, and it's not very good. I'm sorry. He's gotten better, but it's, I don't know if he was doing it on purpose. It could be. But it's just, if you've listened to the whole song, it gets bad. Anyway, while she's there, Sammy comes up to her and is like, please tell me it isn't true. Basically, like, please tell me you guys didn't sleep together. Even Vicky comes up to her and is like, sex is the quickest way to ruin a friendship. Basically, both of them being like, what the fuck? You know, she gets there. Troy sees that she's there and is like, hold on, because he has a phone call. Right when he leaves the stage to take this phone call, Michael shows up. I thought a cute tidbit about Michael showing up is that he's wearing a leather jacket when he shows up, which I was watching this with with my boyfriend, with Andy. And he was like, look how cute he's like trying to become, be yeah, become like one of Lelena's people. Like he has his cute little leather jacket on, which I had never noticed again in the 150 times I saw this movie. <laughs> and that leather blazer was actually Ben Stiller's actual blazer. And so he shows up with his cute little leather jacket and he's like, look, I have two tickets. We can go to New York fix and your documentary the way and you it want better. it to be done, which I think is amazing. I would have been like, cool, <laughs> let's yeah. go. But then because of the night that she had with Troy, he comes up off stage and then is like, oh, hey, what's up, man? And then he was like, no hard feelings and shakes hands. And then he's like, should I tell him first? Which he only does the, hey, Mike, thanks. First of all, he calls him Mike. Yeah. And then he says, thanks for coming out, man. No hard feelings. He only does this because he thinks he's won. And so he's assuming that Elena is not going to get back with Michael. And that's the only reason he's even being nice to him. Lelaine is like, can I talk to you? And then they have this uh, spiel that goes back and forth. And this is where you have, again, the bullshit of Troy coming out. Because he's playing it off like, oh, I'm sorry that I left. Um, you hanging after we had sex. And I'm scared because I've never loved anyone I've had sex with. And Lelaine is like, well, welcome to the real world. And like, welcome to like what everyone else has been dealing with for forever. And then, but then he says something stupid, like I might do mean things, hurt you, run away and you might hate me forever. So you're trying to be endearing, but at the same time being an asshole. Yeah. He's like, he's trying to win her over. And this is his big moment to be like, no, I'm not that guy that bails the morning after. I'm going to commit. 
I'm going to commit. And then he's like, well, I might do shitty things and you can't do anything about it. Well, I'm going to go with the guy that bought me tickets to New York. Like, I'm going to go. You would think it was that easy. But she's in her 20s. So it's not that easy. She walks away from Troy and he like hits the fist on his wall and then he has to go perform. As payback, he goes up and covers Add It Up by Violent Femmes and dedicates it to her. It's not a good cover either. No. He only sings what, like two or three lines because then she takes off. So Michael and Troy follow Lainey after she kind of storms out of the place. Once she leaves, they kind of have this this back and forth. It's kind of similar to the back and forth they have earlier when Michael and Elena go on a date to where Michael fumbles at first with his argument. Like he's just kind of everywhere. And he's like, you remind me of that guy with the hat and the bells. And Troy's like the court jester. And he's like, yeah. And like, he kind of goes on on this, you know, tangent about, sorry, I'm not Buddha on the mountaintop or whatever. (laughs) But the final thing he says is really important. And it kind of hits Troy the same way that it did before. Because he tells him about, you know, everyone dies alone because the court jester is like, oh, you find the head and like, and then no one says anything good about him or something. Yeah, I used alone. to know this guy and he was funny. And then the court jester dies all by himself. And then Troy says, everyone besides dies everyone alone. dies all by himself. And then Michael says, if you really believe that, why are you out here? Exactly. And it's kind of another moment where Troy's like, well, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, cause he's, where Stiller gets the last line. Exactly. And, and it's then, good. And it's really good. Totally. And then Michael just fails and decides enough is enough and just kind of leaves. Enter All I Want Is You by U2. And it's a montage of Troy flying somewhere to Chicago, we think. A montage of Lainey and there's like smoking and Troy's at a hospital. Lots of smoking. Troy attempts to call uh, Lainey. He hangs up. Classic. That song, the U2 song, All I Want Is You, they only got because Winona was friends with Bono. Wow. Because Ben Stiller was like, God, I really want this song, but U2 is never going to let us use it. And Winona was just like, oh, well, let me just call Bono. And Ben Stiller was like, you're friends with Bono? Like, and I think that just speaks to, we were saying earlier, like this was Winona's like heyday, pretty much. She was so popular at the time mm-hmm. that she just had friends like Bono and could be like, dude, Time let us connect. use her song. I was looking that they didn't even screen the movie. They were just like, yeah, you can use her song. And even then, Bono, or even now, Bono really loves the use of that song in the movie still. Oh, nice. Yeah. Towards the end of this montage, we see Elena kind of packing hurriedly to leave somewhere. And we see a taxi cab show up. She's dressed in like a denim sleeveless button up and like khaki shorts, which at first I was like, oh, this is just 90s clothes. But I guess the implication is that she ended up taking the job at The Gap. And so she's wearing the Gap uniform. Yeah. Fuck, I never noticed that. I never noticed that either. And so, yeah, you you see that she got the job at The Gap and she's leaving to go somewhere. And the taxi cab that we thought was for her is the taxi cab that brings Troy home. This is what I like to call Troy's last pitch because I feel like this is his last shot to redeem himself. And you find out that because he's dressed in a suit and you find out that he just came back from his dad's funeral because his dad died. And so he went back to Chicago to see him. And that's why you saw him in the hospital, the, in the YouTube montage. This is, I think, where I see Ethan Hawke being Ethan Hawke. And when I say Ethan Hawke, I mean like dead poets, Ethan Hawke, where he really shows off that sensitive side and that quieter side. 
And to me, I feel like maybe this is where Troy possibly may have changed his attitude. And of course it comes at the loss of losing your dad or his dad. And what it also really reminded me of with Ethan Hawke in this whole movie is that I feel like this was his first role where, where he played an asshole. Like as leading up to it, he did a live, he did, um, that wolf movie for Disney. White Fang. White Fang. And before that he did Dead Poets. So I feel like this is, this was where he got to stretch his asshole legs. <laughs> his asshole legs. <laughs> but in this scene, I think this is where he goes back to his like old school self. Yeah. Of portraying the shy kind of very timid, um, vulnerable, I guess. Is and the you word totally I'm see it in his face. Like his eyebrows do this thing that does this. But even like his, his like tone. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. He goes very soft and very like, like I said, vulnerable. He's not harsh, like with where he's been the entire movie. And I don't know if that's, you know, because of the lighting in the scene, which the scene was shot in the middle of the day, which to anyone shooting is a fucking nightmare because daytime really light harsh. is so harsh. So what Chivo ended up doing was making this like, canopy i guess of like silks to, to kind of diffuse yeah. the light and that's why it looks like it's like sunset when but it also looks very soft and i think that kind of helps when the, when you when you're showing troy is it kind of helps soften his face a little bit too right and he's all teary-eyed too troy shows up and he kind of is there to express how bad he feels about what's you know gone between or what's happened between him and Lelena since they slept together and he talks about how his dad died and he says he has this planet of regret, which is like a really good line, I think. And he pretty much just like apologizes and asks where Lelena was going. And she says, I was going to look for you. I just wanted to see if you were okay. And then he says, well, I've, I've had a shitty week, but you know, it's fine. And they kind of just make up and they kiss and that's it. And that's where Troy realizes, I got her. She's going to go look for me. Out of all of the moments we have throughout the movie where Troy is quote unquote being sincere, I think this is probably him at his most sincere. Happily ever after question mark. We cut to Troy and Elena and they are what seems to be in a new home because there's boxes everywhere. And Troy is on uh, the couch playing a song on his guitar. Didn't know what it was, but it's Froggy One and Corden. And it's uh, like a lullaby or, or something like, like that. Like an old folk song, yeah, right? Yeah, old folk song. It was told to kids way back in the day. And so it, it sort of, I thought it was like maybe like a, another schoolhouse rock thing. But it was, I mean, it's close. You can see Lelaine is wearing a nicotine patch. Yes. Troy is wearing one too, but you can't really see it. Yeah, I couldn't but see. But supposedly he's wearing one as well. I think when the guitar drops and he goes to grab it, I think you can kind of see it under his sleeve. But they're both supposed to be wearing the nicotine patch. Because they've changed. Which is like, oh. They've evolved. Good for them. And then we get the phone call from Elena's dad. But the answering machine message, because we didn't have voicemail yet, hasn't, hadn't been invented. The uh, answering machine is, Troy, at the bleep, please leave your name, number, and a brief justification for the ontological necessity of man's existential dilemma. Yes. And that's when um, her dad says, why do I have a $900 gas card bill? After this scene, the credits roll and we have actually a post-credit scene, dun, dun, dun. which was weird in the early 90s, right? It's not a Marvel movie. Right. So we have a Tony Robbins infomercial just showing us stuff that we would see 
on the TV 90s, in the nineties, and then uh, infomercial for like for that spray shit. Spray to and make then you it less cuts. Bald. It cuts to a in your face TV show, which is a dramatization of Lelena of what Michael thought Lelena and Troy were up to. Pretty much. I mean, it's kind of spot on. It is pretty spot on, but it's a little dramatic, obviously. Yeah. And Troy sounds way dumber <laughs> in that show than he was in real life. Yeah. But yeah, there's this back and forth. And then um, he's talking about like, oh, you don't love me. He's like, but I love my music and like, I love music, whatever. And then he like takes off and he says, I'm Audi 5000. Was I'm Audi like a thing in the 90s? Because I know that from Clueless where they say I'm Audi. Maybe. But like Audi 5000. <laughs> I don't know. And that's the movie. That's it. Before we end the episode, I kind of just want to go back to a few of the recurring themes in the movie and kind of what we both think about it and relate it to the question, which was, does this movie or did this movie define the 90s fashion wise and aesthetic wise and actor wise, you know, Winona writer Ethan Hawke. I think it does define the 90s. But as far as like content, when you get down to it, I think this can be applied to any generation from then yeah on. you just changed their wardrobe just and a few the things, era, you know and a lot of it could be applied to it and then you have like the recurring themes of not being equipped to handle the life that you were supposedly set up for and you have the love triangle which was a thing i wanted to touch upon which if anyone wants to comment on who you would pick troy versus yeah that's what i was Michael, curious of who would you choose up until I was about 24, I would have totally picked Troy. Even now, I, I was watching it with Andy and I was like, but Troy is Troy. And it's like Ethan Hawke, you know, like when you compare Ethan Hawke to Ben Stiller, no offense to Ben Stiller, but like Ethan Hawke, like totally wins. Looking at it on like their faults, according to the movie, I think she should have ultimately gone with Michael. It was the safer bet at the it time. It was a safer bet. And also... You know, you have with Troy, it's the kind of thing where you're like, oh, I can change him. But with Michael, it's like I can teach him, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like there's a difference there. As shitty as it sounds, there's a difference there because Michael seemed like he was willing to learn versus Troy was like, well, fuck you. This is how I am. And if you don't like it, then you can fucking leave. Which is but it's just also like, like, I feel like Michael would be a door, like we were saying a doormat. Yeah. Where, so would maybe you want to be with someone that's always like. Yeah, let's do that. Even though they don't want to do it. you would or, probably get bored. Yeah, exactly. You know? You would, you would know what to expect and Troy's more exciting, I guess. Yeah. But do you want that kind of excitement? Like after a while, you're just like, this is getting old, right, you know? Right. And it's kind of that thing where I feel like maybe she just had to compromise because yes, she is living her authentic self, but she's living it with Troy, mm -hmm. who is not very good, <laughs> you know? Well, let's play Where Are They Now? Starting with Troy and uh, Lelena. Okay. And I have an inf something influenced me here, which I, I was researching the whole cast minus Steve Zahn for whatever reason had a reunion at Tribeca last year for the 25th anniversary. And that was one of the questions that they asked Winona Ryder is what do you think Lelena would be doing now? Is she still with Troy? And she was like, honestly, I think she would be with Vicky. <laughs> that she was just like the end of things with Troy and found her way back to Vicky and they would just be together. Yeah. And I think either that would have happened, not necessarily Vicky, but I think maybe she just would have gotten with a girl or just like 
broken up with Troy and just not done anything and not gone with anyone, you know? I had a different idea, but I kind of like that idea. Yeah. What was your idea? So my idea was that Lena and Troy do not end up together. That I feel like after three or four years of being together, Elena was like, yeah, I'm doing my, she, where I think she went is that I think she did make a documentary Mm -hmm. and became a documentarian and would do very, you know, pro climate change and like true, like how she said that she wants to save the world or like make an impact. I feel like her documentaries would do that and she would become like an award-winning documentarian would start doing her thing and kind of leave Troy behind and not because Troy is a slacker, but I think because like Troy, as much as that he wanted to change, I don't think he changed enough. Yeah. He would always be a little bit of an asshole and which would drive Lena crazy and just, she'd be done with it. When I rewatched this, I watched it with Andy <laughs> and he mentioned, cause the other day he caught me watching before sunset mm-hmm. And we were watching it and he's like, wait, is this just Jesse from before sunset? But like before he became a writer and it's so perfect because I think before sunrise was right after this or right before this. I think it was like a year or two after. And he looks exactly the same. So like, I think Troy went to Paris (laughs) and met Julie Delpy and they had this night and they left and then he became an author. And then I think that's the Ethan Hawke expanded universe. And then he went into boyhood. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Pro- props to Andy for thinking of that. Cause I, once he said it, I was like, Oh my God. Cause it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, what about Vicky and Sam? I don't know what happened to Sammy. I hope he's living a I good think life. Sammy's living his best life. He's probably living the best life out of all of them. Yeah. He's like married, has a husband and is living in, I bet he's living in Westwood. I was going to say in the Northwest somewhere, but. <laughs> or maybe they're living in like Oregon. That's what I said. That's what <laughs> yeah. I was like, somewhere in the Northwest. Yeah, maybe Oregon for sure. And they have like a farm where they grow sustainable veggies and stuff. Yes. They have a dog. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then Vicky, I think she moves her way up the corporate ladder in retail. Sadly ends up compromising. Kind of, but, you know, I think she's still. Like single. I don't think she ever settled down because she doesn't want to be like her parents. And she's like still just has maybe a partner, but they're not, you know, they have other partners. Polyamorous relationship. Yeah. I could see that for sure. But still works in some kind of retail. Yeah. Just kind of does that and is happy with that. Maybe she founded like, what's new? Oh, started her own business. Yeah. Like she started her own store, like a boutique or something. I'd do that. And then Michael, I think he's like the president of NBC. Totally. (laughs) Or like something like that happened. He's like the president of some (laughs) network and is just like sad and (laughs) terrible that he didn't take a different route with his life. Yeah. Just completely compromised. compromised. When the movie premiered, it premiered at Sundance February 11th, like I mentioned earlier, before it premiered February 18th. After that, they premiered it in Palm Springs for like some of the execs and stuff. And they didn't really get any good reception because they figured it was like all these big wigs and they're not going to get the jokes. So they were like, let's go to Berkeley. Those are our people. Let's go to Berkeley. But as soon as the kids in Berkeley saw the Universal logo, they started booing because it was like we were saying this weird juxtaposition where this movie is about supposed to be all about not selling out. And here we have it produced by Universal, Mm -hmm. like a big company. 
And then throughout the movie, like we were saying, you have all these big brands that show up and it's supposed to be all about not selling out and living your authentic self. So there was kind of this like backlash where people were like, how can this movie tote itself to be like a DIY movie, essentially? A real like Generation X. Exactly. Anti-establishment. And it's being produced by one of the biggest production companies. And that was kind of a lot of the backlash that it had at first. It ended up grossing around 33 million which it was made for like 11 or 10. Okay. So, you know, it's not, it's not too bad. And it's, you know, a cult classic. Now I saw it at the cemetery like three years ago with Synesphia. So it's definitely still popular. Whenever Ben Stiller, Winona, Ethan Hawke talk about it, they always talk about how they have like fond memories about it and how they really enjoyed working on it and how it's just kind of become a part of who they are. When you ask Ben Stiller, if there's like anything he would change about the movie now, he mentions that he would have changed how much smoking there is in the movie because mm-hmm. he feels like it definitely fetishizes smoking, Yeah, which absolutely the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, I really want to go smoke now. Every time I watch the movie, yeah. it makes me want to smoke. But again, it's like a product of its time where like you're trying to report things as accurately as they were at that time. And that's how it was. You were smoking at diners, you were smoking in hospitals, you were smoking outside, you were smoking in bed. still allowed. So it's kind of just like, I, I feel like, I wouldn't take it out. I would leave it in because that's how it was. Unfortunately, when people were talking about, you know, the script and the story, it was more often than not attributed to Ben Stiller. And kind of even in one of the articles I was reading at the beginning, one of the producers like, oh, yeah, that gas station scene, like that was totally Ben, even though it had been written in the script that Helen had written. And even in one of the articles I read where they're interviewing her, she didn't even know about the Tribeca reunion panel until they mentioned it in the interview wow and then after the interview was published then they invited her and i was like why would you do that like what's fucked up is that she's kind of the only one that didn't really get any work like this is her only yeah i saw her credits as far as a writer and like and she had tried to do stuff but she's saying that a lot of her stuff had female protagonists and she feels like that maybe that's why studios didn't want to do them they didn't want to do it and as of 2014, there was supposed to be a reality bite show with Ben Stiller, but it just never happened. Mm-mm. That really sucks because like I said, that's one of the things that sticks out to me, how well it's written, you know, not just again for a period 90s movie, but just like it's the even the non 90s verbiage is like it's extremely well written. And even in the commentary I was listening to with her and Ben Stiller. She talks about the premiere date and she's like, February 11th. And he's like, how do you remember that? And she's like, it's my only movie. Like, how would I not remember that? Yeah. And it's her biggest movie. Exactly. Too. And so it's just like kind of depressing to think about that. You know, she was the one that wrote the entire thing and she's the one that gets the least credit for it. The soundtrack is pretty well received at this point. I feel like fans of the movie are, are pretty high fans of, of the soundtrack. And how that came to be is that... Um, Karen Rachtman, who was the music supervisor and Ben Stiller, ended up meeting with RCA. And they struck a deal where Stiller and Rachtman could choose any of RCA's artists. So they basically opened the vault and said, you guys can use any of our RCA artists. The only band that they chose from RCA is Me, Fi, Me, which I can't even remember uh, where you hear it in the movie. Me either. It's called Revival, but I had never heard of them until I I had researched it. RCA heavily marketed the soundtrack and they had five tracks that played regularly on MTV. The soundtrack sold 1.2 million copies 
it hit uh, the Billboard charts. It put Lisa Loeb on the map and her number one hit, Stay, which plays during the credits, um, became a hit, like I said. And she was actually the first artist to hit the Hot 100 without uh, being signed to a music label. So it definitely catapulted her. The interesting thing about how Lisa was even on the soundtrack in the first place was because she used to play at, I think, like a coffee shop that Ethan Hawke would go to. And so he was like, we should get her to do a song for the soundtrack. And when he heard Stay, he was like, this song has to be on the soundtrack. He sent it to Ben Stiller and Ben Stiller just agreed. And that's how she ended up on the soundtrack. As we wrap up our coverage on Reality Bites, we have to go back and answer the question we asked at the beginning, which was, did Reality Bites help define the 90s? So Manny, what do you think? I think it did to an extent, especially post-1994, because people you know, who watched the movie that didn't live the 90s think, oh, that's how really the 90s were. And that's one of the things that I really like about this film is that because it was made in the 90s, it kind of captured it in a really realistic way as where if it would have been made in the 2000s and 2010s, maybe it would have been a hyper version of it. Um, and I've noticed that in movies, how the more we get away from like, if we're doing a movie of the fifties, it would be a little bit more closer to reality if you made it in the sixties. And if you made it now, because you have people that lived it and can consult and, and you have a reference point, but um, movies that are made, and I'm going to talk about a little bit about Wonder Woman 84. Um, to me, that's a little too hyper-realistic 1980s. And like I said, because it's two, 2020 now, it makes it feel like it was like just, it's too much 80s, I guess. But also if you like that flavor, like go for it. But to me, I like the more downplayed, more realistic, or at least close to realistic version of the 90s. And I think Reality Bites like really capture that. And going back to the Generation X, which is also tied into this whole thing, I think it did really display what potentially Generation X wanted to do and didn't achieve for all the reasons that we mentioned earlier. And so I think, like we said about, you know, being in your early 20s and thinking that you're going to have things figured out, but you really don't. It really sort of wrapped all of that together uh, in a nice package that, like I said, helped define the 90s post 1994. I agree. I think in conjunction with other movies that kind of came out in, or movies that you would think about when you think of the 90s. Like I know one that I really think about when I think of the 90s is Clueless, but I feel like that's a little less relatable. That kind of seems like a hyper 90s. Like you mm -hmm. were talking about Wonder Woman, even though it was made in the 90s, Clueless was made in the 90s, but it seems more of like a hyper 90s versus like Reality Bites where it's more of like a a grungy 90s, which is more of what I assume it was like. I mean, I don't remember much, but I kind of assume it was it was that way. I think it defines the 90s aesthetically and kind of, you know, the verbiage that they use and kind of how everything was generationally. I think that you can apply it to anyone struggling out of college, pretty much, like no matter what generation you're in. I think that there are themes in the movie that you can relate to no matter your, your age. Yeah. But as far as like aesthetics, then it's totally a 90s movie. Ending this podcast like we always do with a double feature. Now, again, if you haven't listened, a double feature was a thing that was done back in the day and still some art house theaters still do it today. But it's usually a movie that has something to do with 
the main feature maybe has an actor in common, a theme, or it could just be some thematic element that maybe isn't too obvious. Angie, what is your double feature for Reality Bites? For my double feature, I'm going with the movie that I kind of aesthetically see is similar to Reality Bites, even though technically it doesn't take place around the same time. It's also, I guess you could say, a romance. It's a fucked up romance, too. There's a lot of good music in it. There's a music club in it. There's a record store in it. And it's High Fidelity. Is that what you're going to pick? No. (laughs) Okay, cool. So, yeah, I would pick High Fidelity because I feel like the themes in the movie are kind of similar, that it's like a romance comedy. There isn't as much, like, hard-hitting, serious stuff in High Fidelity as there is in Reality Bites. They're similar in the way that they revolve around the themes of love and like music and, you know, trying to live your authentic self. And so I don't know, that's, I would like to see both of those movies together. My choice for the double feature is also a movie that people think about for a certain era of time. And it's also about what does my future hold? Like where am I going to figure things out? A little bit younger than Reality Bites, but my pick is The Breakfast Club. Oh, good soundtrack on that one too. A movie that defined the 80s for sure. Um, Took play, was shot and filmed during the 80s. You have a bunch of high schoolers with very different personalities. Not as varied as like Reality Bites, but still everyone's sort of different in their own way. But also trying to think of, you know, what does the future hold and what are we going to be? And when is this nightmare going to be over of high school? It goes deeper into each character than Reality Bites. And it has also fucked up moments with relationships with your parents and how fucked up that can be. Um, but I feel like, you know, th- it just fits the whole idea of a generation and then era and, and really helped uh, define, like I said, the, the 80s. That's a good pick. And that about wraps up our deep plunge into reality bites. Coming up on the next episode of Cut, Just Another Movie Podcast, we're actually going to do our first feature length animated film. And it's also our most current movie. It actually came out last year and it heavily involves music. So that's the clue. It's your job to figure it out. Once again, we want to thank everyone for listening. We're really thankful for everyone that listens to each podcast. And like we said earlier, our goal is again, a thousand uh, followers and subscribers. So if you haven't subscribed or followed us, make sure that you do that. We are at Cut Movie Pod on YouTube and at Cut Movie Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Cut. That's a wrap. Cut.